welcome to another amazing episode of the Ludogogi podcast. We are your hosts. I am Antonis. And I'm Sarah. And today we have a very special guest with us, don't we, Sarah? We do. Today we're welcoming Mohsin Memon. Mohsin is a games designer, learning professional facilitator who dreams of a world where people play to learn. He's passionate about games-based learning, gamification and games in general. And he uses games and technology to change the way learning happens by creating real and authentic lifelike learning experiences that ultimately lead to realization and then change. Welcome, Mohsin. Thank you. Wow, that sounded like a mouthful. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Is there anything you need to add? Is there anything I've missed out there? No, I think that's the end of the podcast. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> All right. It was a wonderful episode. Goodbye and see you next month. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. But maybe you can tell us uh, a word or two uh, more in detail about games that you have created. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I've uh, designed... Uh, I focus a lot more on multiplayer games. So, you know, games in which people kind of come together to play, whether they're synchronous or asynchronous. And I've built both of those types of games. Uh, two of my most popular games are, is one called Evive, the leadership game. And uh, of which, in fact, interestingly, both of you are certified facilitators too. And, uh, and the other one is uh, Superhero Within, which I'm just now getting ready to make available to learning practitioners around the world. Shh, we have a sneak peek. <laughs> yes, I, yes, you're going for quite an interesting uh, kind of model with that, aren't you? I, I seem to remember I got an email the other day about shared ownership. That's that sounds really yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your your uh, your post on that or response on that Antonis was just spot on. That's exactly what I'm I'm looking to do, which is exit to community. I, I didn't know the term, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's amazing. I have some experience with it, so we can talk about it on, a, on another podcast, I guess, <laughs> because uh, today we're focusing on uh, games that you have created, games-based learning, and what we can learn from you. But before we dive in into that, let's, um, let's move on to some fun facts, because that's something we really like to ask our guests. But instead of asking you <laughs> to share fun facts about yourself, I, I want to be really specific because I'm really curious to learn more about that. Uh, Sarah, did you know that if you look at IMDb for uh, Mosin Memon, you will see him credited in, in, in a whole host of Bollywood movies. So <laughs> what about that? Let's talk about that, Mosin. Yeah, that's, that's one topic that doesn't uh, come up in my game design conversations usually. But um, I do have a, a history or rather a, uh, a career or have had a career in Bollywood. And I was an actor when I was a kid. Uh, it's something that I'm, I'm stepping up to owning more of. Uh, for a long time, I wouldn't talk about it. And just I think just because I'm, I'm really shy <laughs> in general. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to talk about it. Yeah, I was, a, I was a child actor at one point. Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting journey. So um, I, I've got some experience of your, your process for, for designing games because we got involved um, in a group of people who designed a game called Port Brock. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, but I just wanted to ask, do you have any, any specific process to get ideas for your games? I look to life uh, to a far extent to inspire me to get ideas for games. Uh, and, and in that vein of thought, you know, a lot of the games that I've designed have been inspired by the world around me. And so if I, for example, was inspired by a, a 
project manager who was having a hard time with his team, uh, trying to get everybody together and aligned with one another so that they commit to the right kind of things to their customers and clients. Um, Superhero Within, yet another similar sort of situation. Um, uh, poor Brock, I mean, inspired by by um, Black Lives Matters as a, as the original intent. You remember we talking about that back in the day. We did. Um, and, and like that, many other games. You know, I have game ideas as well. I was reading Sapiens uh, a while back, and I remember getting some ideas around that. And I was like, oh, that could be an interesting game, actually. Uh, but really, at the core of it, it's uh, games for me are about being able to not just create, but also show the consequence of decision making, which I think is such an important element for learning. Because when you when you make decisions and when you see the consequence and when you reflect about it, that can be a powerful opportunity for learning. So that's that's kind of sort of tackles the the learning aspects and when you, you you're coming up with ideas of games and what you want them to do um but um i know for a fact because I've, I've played your games and as you say i'm a, a qualified facilitator for revive um you like you like a good sci-fi theme don't you oh i love so where does all that come from where does the inspiration for that come from oh i love sci-fi you know all the games i've played and all the movies i watch and and the books that i've read and all of that i just get so inspired by um creating something that is and I, I also like this post-apocalyptic sort of theme which is in evive uh, but i do love sci-fi i have to say i'm guilty of that my, my personal opinion i don't know if you agree with this is that speculative fiction and sci-fi obviously being a, a, a big part of that they're really good at helping us to ask ourselves all of those big questions about what it is to be human because you've got that kind of that step of remove um, that makes it a bit more comfortable to have those conversations uh, because you're not talking about your own uh, your own opinions or your own ideas. You can be talking about the attitude that somebody has towards androids rather than the attitude that somebody has towards black people or whatever. Um, and it gives you that comfortable step of remove to, to ask those difficult questions, I think. Yeah, yeah, spot on. And, and I think you really are able to push the boundaries with sci-fi because it's a world that that we haven't seen and and you can create whatever you know and that's that's actually what what i really like about a sci-fi theme uh as opposed to a realistic theme because people can challenge a realistic theme and say oh that's not how it is in real life you know but yeah. if it, it's sci-fi well i mean if the world is upside down then that's what it is and that's you know that's the that's the construct that I, as an author, get to create and my players who step into that world will live by those rules and, and operate to those laws. I, I totally subscribe to that. And that's why we <laughs> three of us get along, I guess. I have another podcast called Future Diaries in which we're doing exactly that. We are basically writing science fiction and acting it out in the podcast in order to highlight a variety of social and environmental issues that we, we care about and we want to basically use the lens of science fiction to show what the problems are, what solutions could be, or completely imaginary situations about how to, how to look at things from a, from a completely different perspective. Um, one thing I find is different between writing literature or the script for a movie or, or a podcast in that sense, uh, that, that uses science fiction as this uh, lens to, to highlight things. Uh, and what is different from using, uh, from scripting science fiction around games is mechanics. 
So that I'm using that as a segue now to, <laughs> to ask you very concretely, uh, what, where do you get your inspiration for specific mechanics for your games? Or how do you translate what you want to convey as a message into the mechanics that, um, that, that make the plot of the game move forward? Hmm. Wow. I have to say that is perhaps one of the most specific questions I've ever been asked in a podcast interview. And, and I love You're it. You're welcome. I, yeah, no, totally. Thank you. And I love it, especially because, you know, we've, it takes a certain nuanced mind uh, to, to, uh, you know, frame it and, and also our audience, I'm sure the people that listen to this podcast, uh, are people who are, who work at the intersection of games and learning. So, so that's a, that's a question that, that I love. Um, for me, let's take the example of a very simple mechanic. And I think a lot of people would have played Evive or will play Evive at some point or another. So maybe that's a relevant uh, reference point. And one of the mechanics in Evive is the offers. Yeah. So, so what is an offer in the world of Evive? It's an opportunity to accept uh, and, and commit to earning more money to deliver a certain resource so you can earn money. Um, now that mechanic specifically indicates that we are trying to um, limit the number of people that can accept that offer. And, and in, in essence, we're creating a sense of competition. Um, but fulfilling the offer can be good for the entire team, all the players who are playing the game at the same time and not fulfilling the offer has a negative impact on the entire team. Individually, it doesn't affect a person uh, if the offer goes, uh, goes unfulfilled. So there is a personal gain while there is a social loss uh, if that offer is accepted and not fulfilled, right? So, so thinking from a perspective of how do we get people to collaborate with one another and how do we get people to see the impact again, goes back to that, you know, consequence of decision. Um, the inspiration really comes from, from observing life and from observing, going back to what I was saying about this project manager who was having a hard time with his team and, and observing what are, what are some of the nuances that are playing out in that equation. And, and I think as a game designer, uh, one of the key skills that's very important is to just be extremely observant and, and trying to pick up on the nuances of what's really playing out here and, uh, and then translating that into how can, how can we represent that in a fictional sort of environment in the game? Uh, one of the things I really like about Evive in relation to what you just said is that you also have the opposite. Like without spoiling the details, you have kind of a prisoner's dilemma kind of situation. So what's the inspiration for, for that? Is it just to, to use the two opposites to, to better understand what you're dealing with or tell us more about it? Yeah. Uh, one is, one is balancing the game. So, so there's a game balancing effect, which I think is important in, in all games. And, you know, we play games, so we understand the importance of that. Um, the other bit of it is also a deviation. Uh, we want to see how people respond to deviation. Um, will they get deviated? Are they committed to the team's goal? And, and finally, I think, which is perhaps the most important reason why I've introduced that mechanic, 
uh, is to also account for those members of the team who've been sidelined or marginalized. And that happens in all teams, almost all teams, in nearly all large multiplayer game ecosystems. Uh, and it's a very natural sort of response, you know, humanistically, that we tend to respond to the loud and the vocal ones, whereas the quiet ones tend to get sidelined. And so throwing this sort of a mechanic um, is an interesting opportunity for a designer and for a learning practitioner to be able to see uh, what's going on there. Will people respond to that? It's really interesting that you, you mentioned balancing a game because um, that to me is one of the most difficult aspects of creating a game. And you can create a game and then spend months literally trying to get it to balance so that, you know, it, that there is that proper um, kind of experience between challenge and, and, and ease and so on and so forth. So you get that flow and also th so things like economics work properly. Um, so I'd like to ask you, I, I, I particularly find that challenging, but I'd like to, to ask you what's your biggest challenge you've come across in games design and how did you go about solving that? I think my biggest challenge in game design is getting started. And, you know, because when you're, when you're looking at, you've got these ideas and these concepts in your mind and you're kind of mulling them over. And sometimes it takes days, weeks, months, even for you to really like think through an, uh, an idea. Um, and then suddenly you're, you tell yourself, all right, you know what, I'm going to get started. I'm going to do this. And then before you know it, it's, this mammoth of a, of a project that's in front of you. And it's like, how do I even begin? So, and then, and then to, to, to couple that with my kryptonite or, or weakness, if you will, which is documentation. So, so starting with a game design document, I think that's my, that's my hardest diff, most difficult and challenging part beyond that. I think once I, once I overcome that initial sort of a hump, I'm able to sort of move and cruise through it. Times being what they are at the moment, um, saying that your your kryptonite is uh, is uh, documentation and, and getting started is a problem. Have you had a play with ChatGTP yet? I have, I have, spot on, and that's you know that's going to be how I use ChatGPT. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, I've, I've been getting it to create uh, character sheets, which has been really, really quite successful. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I actually want to give ChatGPT uh, the game mechanics of Evive and ask it uh, to translate them into learning outcomes for me, which I think, which has been something I've been struggling with for a while, you know, because it's so time consuming and so attention requiring as a task. So I feel that that perhaps giving it the context and the pretext and letting it just seeing what happens, does it, is it able to give me something concrete? It seems to be seem to be quite good if you give it a structure and you're very, very clear about what a structure is. And then you say, and now given it, give me an instance of that structure with this flavor. It's quite good at that sort of thing. That's how I've, that's how I've done the, the character sheets. One of the things I did with it is, um, I, I, I created a prompt for a storytelling game. So basically it created a scenario, uh, but instead of giving me choices, it let me do a free text response to that scenario. And then it created another scenario based on my response. And then I gave another response and whatever. Um, and then at the end, I asked it to create an evaluative report of how the person had played the game with regard to leadership skills. 
that was really interesting. <laughs> wow. That gives me another idea on, I wonder if I can take the transcript of an entire Evive game and feed it to ChatGPT with the pretext of this is a game and this is, you know, the text of that game with all the people talking. I wonder, I wonder what I could do with it. Well, that would definitely be interesting, but, uh, as everything, as with everything regarding AI or tech solutions to complex problems, take it with a grain of salt. Oh yeah. <laughs> that yeah. would be my advice <laughs> because, um, it's AI is not smart. Like the, the eye is really missing. It's just incredibly capable of, uh, analyzing massive amounts of data and, uh, cr coming up with patterns that, uh, that, that arise from them, but it really depends on the data you, f you feed it with. So it's, it's really, I, I see, for example, <laughs> naturally occurring, uh, racism, sexism, transphobia, all the isms you can imagine just arising from simple, playful prompts because the data is there and there's a lot of discrimination out there. For example, I ask Midjourney to create something and I give it a prompt that includes the word human. It almost always will come out as a man. The white, white man. Yeah. 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 It's, it's incredible. <laughs> so I think, I think, I think it's right. Cause they are just stochastic parrots really. Uh, yeah, you know, they're yeah. just predicting what word they should write. I mean, they don't understand it. You know, chat GTP doesn't understand what it's reading or what it's writing. Yeah. 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 And, and, I think as long as you keep that always in mind, it's a really, really good way of getting past that blank page. And documentation, it's great for. Yeah, I, getting back to to the to the origins of this conversation, uh, in a game, in a board game that I co-authored for a European project that had to do with uh, climate change and creative in a cooperative board game, uh, raising awareness about climate change and how it works and how you could uh, build a city for the future collaboratively and so on and so on. Um, I followed the, the opposite process. Instead of coming up first with the mechanics and then trying to translate them into what it means in real life, I, I had the opposite exactly because I, I looked at it from how speculative fiction is supposed to work. Like um, I looked at the effects in, in real life based on climate change and how these could be translated into mechanics. So I followed more the design thinking process that instead of having the solution and seeking for the problem, you actually first understand the problem and then try to come up with the solutions that uh, apply to that problem. So th that's, I, I mentioned that because um, you mentioned uh, giving ChatGPT the mechanics and then asking it to to lead to, to translate it into what skills this developed. I, I would go with the opposite. Yeah. That also reminds me of the, the pandemic style of the pandemic, the board game style of gameplay as well, where the board is laid out with a, a set of, you know, viruses and sort of diseases that are spread across the, and then the players are working to sort of undo it before it, it hits critical mass or outbreak. Yeah. That that's pretty much <laughs> they they it's the basis for all collaborative board games. Like this is your 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 reference point, and it was also the one for the the board game that we created on on the climate crisis. It was exactly what it was, <laughs> the pandemic style collaborative game. How else do you do collaborative game? Um, getting back to the podcast. Uh, so getting back to the different kinds of uh, mechanics and how these are 
either translated from real life or translate to real life skills. It brings us to the topic of this month for Ludagogi, which is transversal skills. And we thought you'd be the perfect guest for that, exactly because this is your focus with uh, at least the games that we played, <laughs> which is Evive and uh, Superhero Within. So tell us more about that. How, how do you feel your work relates to transversal skills and how? Yeah, I, I think beyond functional and technical skills, transversal skills are perhaps one of the most important set of skills uh, that we carry and build, continue to build on through our lives. And, you know, sometimes, and, and it's really, the line is, is so gray that we're not always able to tell if, if this was a skill we learned in year one of our career, or if it was a skill we learned you know, in year five of our career that we are now combining to use in order to create effectiveness in whatever it is that we're doing. So, so my take on transversal skills is that, I mean, it is, it is fundamental and building them uh, is, is so very crucial. And, and that begs the question, how do we build these transversal skills? Uh, and, and I think game game elements or game ecosystems are great crucibles for building these skills uh, because they they tap into you not operating in the closed controlled environment of your workspace or where whatever context that you're in it takes you out of that context places you in a completely different and new context where you are nearly forced to one use the skills that you already have and therefore develop them further or gain new skills that you will then use beyond the context of the game. I can, I can personally say, and I think all people who've ever played board games or any type of games can, can honestly say that things that they learned from the games that they played were, were applicable in other parts of their lives as well. Yeah. I think one, one thing that games make how to put it easier to access or to understand is how to react to unexpected situations. Because when, when a game is really good, you don't really know what's coming next, but you have to be prepared anyway. And then what, when that situation comes into play in the game, you have to deal with it with whatever you are given in the game. And that's a skill that it's incredibly useful, viable and powerful in real life as well, especially now that uh, we live in such a faster pace of change and with a lot more systemic issues that we have to deal with. Yeah. And speaking of, of specific elements, right? So we're talking about decision-making uh, along the way as players are making decisions one after another as they're playing a game. Because all game, as opposed to other media, requires active participation from the players. And so the players themselves are making decisions every step of the way, which is changing the outcome. And so decision-making is a, is a big one. Problem-solving is another one. Creative thinking is another one. You know, strategic thinking is another one. Being able to be analytical and, you know, being detail-oriented or being able to zoom out and see the big picture. All of these things are so nuanced that it's hard for, you know, anyone to teach it in just a, in just theory or in concept. It's something that one has to experience, practice, try, fail, adjust, and then 
learn that, oh, okay, now I think I know how to do it a bit better than I did before. So apart from your own games, which I'm, I'm, guess, I'm guessing you love, you're very enthusiastic about them, very passionate about what they do. Um, so apart from your own games, what other games do you like to play? Well, if this was a visual, I would show and point to the, you know, the visual behind me. And I've got some, some of my favorite games. And you've heard me talk about this one a handful of times, actually. Yeah, Imhotep, yeah. you talk about a lot. Yeah. I can see we've got, I can see your backgrounds match a little bit. I can see you've got Wingspan, as I have behind me. I see code names, which is also common. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah. Have you tried uh, Seven Wonders Duel? It's a brilliant. Yes, yes that's yeah. good. Yeah. Have you tried Jaipur? I haven't, but I've heard great things about it. So tell me about Jaipur. What's 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 great about Jaipur and how how has it inspired you in your work? Oh, wow. So Jaipur is a two player game. It's uh, designed by Sebastian Pion and um, it's it's a very simple sort of buying and um, selling goods. So think of Jaipur as a marketplace. And so you are collecting, it's a set collection game. So you're collecting these different sets. So this is, you've got silk and you've got camels used for transport and you've got diamonds and, and spices. And um, of course the diamonds and the silk and the gold and silver will cost, will have a much higher value associated with them. Uh, but then they also have limits such as you have to be, uh, they, they're only sold in pairs. And, and, you know, these mechanics, they're so simple, but when combined together, it can create such interesting responses from players. And so when I play games, whether it's Jaipur or, or any of these other games, uh, I'm always, I'm always looking for that Nash's equilibrium. You know, I'm always looking to, to find where's, where's game theory in all of this, you know, and, and interestingly, game theory is not game design. And, and I remember many, many years ago when I first got into game design, I took a game theory course because I thought, you know, game theory, game design. Yeah, it sounds similar. And the first thing that the instructor said in, in that, and is that if you're in this for game design, you're in the wrong class. And I was like, Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> sounds like, sounds like I am. And, you know, and I, I remember learning through that entire course about game theory and I was blown away by the things that I learned. So one of the things I look for in the games that I, I play, whether they are board games or whether they are um, uh, video games, even mobile games, whether single player or multiplayer, is I look for what what is the game causing the player to do so naturally you know what what's the the course of least resistance for a player to try and maximize his payoff as they say in game theory so i'm looking for that and and each game has its own way of doing it but by studying that and observing that and that's that's also one of the reasons i said you know i said as game designers we have to be extremely observant and as observing that i'm able to learn something or the other about how this designer has gone about doing that. Speaking of which, really interesting. what other game designers do you admire? And maybe you would like to see them on this show. Oh, wow. Um, I would, I would love to see, I don't know if you've got Rainer Knizzi on your list, but he's brilliant. Uh, there, yeah, he is. I mean, you've played any of his games. You already know. Um, you Rosenberg is, is another one. 
Um, Glass Road is another, is a game that he's designed. Um, there are a number of game designers uh, who are also doing some amazing things in India, actually. And I'm quite clued into the game uh, board gaming community here. And, and there are some friends who are actually doing some amazing things. So I can give you some recommendations as well, uh, you know, if, if that's an area you are keen on. Certainly, yeah. As a games designer then, um, and obviously thinking about the games designers you were just talking about that you admire, uh, what piece of advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out in the field? Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of readers of Ludagogi who are very much just starting out in their careers in in both games design and learning design. So, what what advice would you give to them? In the context of of both game design and learning design, uh, or you, designing learning experiences using game or game elements. I think there's a lot of material out there. There's a lot of resources out there. And sometimes it can feel overwhelming because there's so much, right? And, and a lot of times people don't know where to begin and they struggle just, just like I did when I was first getting started. And, you know, do I look at game theory? Do I look at game design? Do I look at models like DPE and, or M MDL, MDE? And, you know, there's so much out there and it can be very confusing uh, and overwhelming. So my thing is the suggestion that I, I tell myself um, is to get started, you know, build something, a prototype, start small, try to um, mimic what's happening in your world for which you're building the game for, you know, put a sci-fi spin on it, uh, just, or, or whatever, whatever, you know, context spin that you want on it and play with the idea, prototype early, you know, um, do design sprints and, and see how it goes. See, see if it works, if it doesn't work, take feedback, keep making it better. Evive has been a game in the making for the last eight years. You know, I started, I built the first design prototype of Evive back towards the end of 2015. So it's an ongoing project. And now Evive 3 is in development. So, <laughs> And I guess we'll get to see it. We'll be the first to see it as uh, certified facilitators, aren't we? Mm, you are. You absolutely are. <laughs> yes. It's going to be a 3D Unity designed what? world. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, Whoa. In Unity. All right. All right. Oh, my God. That takes so much time. I, I tried my hands a bit on that as well, but uh, I think I'm, even though I'm a designer at heart, <laughs> I'm uh, better at coming up with a scenario and mechanics and stuff like that rather than uh, actually building. So in real life, my, my hands are working really well, like building props for games and um, for board games or designing for cars and stuff like that. I'm, I'm really good at that. But somehow, despite all my tech savviness, I, I'm not that good at, uh, yeah, building 3D objects uh, on a, on an environment that that requires so much, so much. So I hope you're using a good team of designers for for Unity. <laughs> that and the Unity Asset Store. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. So the topic of this uh, episode and this month of the Dogogi is transversal skills, and this is pretty much the the focus of your games as well. And it also happens to be what the skills that you developed while designing games. So I'm wondering if uh, throughout your career as a game designer or facilitator, you've discovered skills that can be translated 
into something that can be really useful outside of games as well, to be transversal, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try and, and answer that question with keeping in mind me as a player of games as well. Um, so so going back to when I was when I was getting started with just playing games, you know, as a kid, and I remember developing uh, a deeper understanding of um, resource collection and resource development and stringing resources together to create something bigger, you know, even delayed gratification, which is, which is such a, such a difficult thing to teach, you know, to, to, to kids, especially. I remember learning some of these skills playing Sid Meier's games like civilization. It's a brilliant game, right? I mean, you're, you're just kind of developing and keeping resources until you have uh, realizing that wars are expensive, Right. And, and I think that translates into, into conflict. And so, you know, picking, picking fights that are worth the cause, not always just picking fights with, for no random reason. And I guess that helps you in domestic situations. So, <laughs> so, so in that context, you, you start to really learn, um, skills that you start to realize that are applicable in a number of different ways. Uh, from a standpoint of, of my own career as a designer, uh, I think one of the skills that I've had to learn over time is to be comfortable talking about these games, the games that I've also created, um, and talking about it with, you know, with, in so on social media, with on LinkedIn and, and elsewhere. And, and through that, realizing that, wait, I, I think I might have a skill there or might have developed a skill of being able to engage a group of people who might be interested in what I have to say. Uh, and that's, you know, one of those fringe benefits that you, you gain from, from any career, whether it's in, in game design or, um, in, in playing games and, and finally, I think it's it's going back to that obs being observant to be able to know that um, there might be something here that I could learn and gain from. So um, I'm, I'm hoping after all this, and I'm sure that people's appetites will now be whetted to find out a bit more about some of the games you've developed, about Revive and uh, Superhero Within and so on. So where can they go out go to find about more about you and, and about your games? Yeah, so each of the games have their own uh, web addresses, and or you could just Google them. And so in Evive's case, it's E-V-I-V-V-E, -V -V -E, and you could just go to evive.com, and you could do a Google search, and you'll see a lot of information about the game. Uh, you also have an opportunity to, to just play it online. There's, a, there's an online version of it that you can play individually or together. I host multiplayer sessions on fairly regular basis so they can join that um, and they can go to superherowithin.org where they can find out more about superhero within as well and you offer um obviously certification programs for people who want to become facilitators of evive don't you yeah yeah i do so so as a part of bringing Evive to the world, I've created a certification program for learning practitioners who are interested in adding yet another tool to their toolkit of games. And Evive can be um, that tool and they can learn how to use Evive and how to facilitate the game through a certification. It's roughly about 20 to 25 hours of work that one can go through. It's entirely self-paced so they can go through that program and learn 
about how to facilitate a vibe in a range of different competencies. And on another note, for Superhero Within, um, currently uh, I'm offering 20 free credits to um, to you know early subscribers of uh, to the platform, and anybody who wants to. This is specifically geared towards instructional designers who want to gamify content or content-based learning. And we can highly recommend both being certified facilitators. <laughs> yes, definitely. We'll make sure to put the relevant links in the description of this episode. So if you are on the lookout for a new exciting game to try, dear audience, then just read the description as well as listening to this episode. Thank you so much, Mozin, for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. It's, uh, it's always a delight to connect with both of you. Yes, thank you. This has been the Ludogoiki Podcast. Game, game over! over.